80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. So when I got to the Ways and Means Committee and Wilbur Mills was chairman, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, is that right? Uh, because Wilbur Mills treated every member, Republican or Democrat, with with respect. I mean, I remember the first time that I worked walked into Mills's office in the Capitol, and there was a long table, and he was sitting at the end of it, and the door to the, to the room was on the other end. So when I walked in and I saw him sitting there, I thought I was having an audience with God. <laughs> On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. This week, we're going to take a little step back from talking about pure advocacy because I am thrilled that we have a very special guest, and in fact, our first former member of Congress, Bill Archer, served the 7th District of the state of Texas from 1971 to 2001, and very illustrious career that doesn't need any real explaining, but we're going to cover a lot of that in this conversation. So, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for welcoming us to your house, and I want to welcome you to the program. Well, I'm glad to be with you, and it's a, it's a good for me to be able to express myself to a wide audience like you have well uh, you're going to help make it wider i'm sure <laughs> appreciate that let me start with a, a question that i don't think i've ever asked you before you got your start in politics at the local level because you were you had no political background no political bones in the family right correct what motivated you to enter the world of politics back in houston area well, my father had always been interested in politics uh, from the outside, and he had supported uh, financially many conservative candidates um, over the years. And I think it was a lot of his influence on me that uh, caused me to ultimately get involved in politics. Uh, and... I started uh, really at the local level uh, on the city council of Hunters Creek Village, which is a suburb of Houston, and suddenly cut my teeth on what it was like to do campaigning and to get elected to a, to an office, and and then also what it was like to be a, an elected official 
and have to deal with other people and make things happen. And uh, that was good background for me. Then you went from that to the Texas State House for Correct. a couple of years. What motivated you at that point to decide to run for Congress? Well, I, I realized being in the Texas legislature that most of what was happening effectively in the United States was coming from Congress and coming from Washington, and that local governments had a limited role to play. So I, I was in George Bush's congressional district, and uh, by the way, in the in the uh, in the legislature, I first ran as a Democrat while he was getting elected to Congress from the same district as a Republican, and it was a very unusual situation. So I realized that uh, there was a good possibility that he would run for the Senate. And if he did, it would mean there'd be an open seat. And um, he was the first Republican elected from Harris County uh, to the Congress in memory. And so I went to his office one day and told him that I'd never met him, but I went to his office and and had a nice visit with him, told him that uh, I was not interested in pushing him out of the seat, but there were many heavy rumors that he was going to run for the Senate. And if he did and vacated the congressional seat, then I intended to run for it. He was not excited about that (laughs) because he had heard some uh, false stories about how I had ganged up on trying to defeat him in the legislature by redistricting his district. And that actually had occurred, but I was not part of the group that was trying to make it happen. And I told him I wasn't, but I'm not sure that uh, carried a lot of weight with him. But in any event, when I first ran, he did not support me. Hmm. And he had, I had two opponents, and I don't know which one he supported. He said he was neutral, but I'm not sure that was true. And of the two opponents that I had, they were sons of very successful, prominent businessmen in Houston, Texas. And they each had a lot of money to spend. I didn't have much money. And in the race, uh, I think I spent only $75,000 on primary and general election. But I got uh, 53% of the vote and won without a runoff. And uh, then in November, I really uh, had no big problem. The district was a Republican district. And I was able to win uh, without a whole lot of difficulty against a very good Democrat opponent. And after that, it was uh, it was the district that overwhelmingly got the largest Republican vote of any congressional district in the country. Mm. And I, in every one of my succeeding races, that was what I got. So that was that was a very good place for me to be. You mentioned that you had switched parties. You started as a Democrat. When did you make that switch? While you were in the state house? 
Yes. Um, I made that switch in October of 1967. That had to be a fascinating time to be in Texas politics because I get, I'm thinking of John Connolly and, of course, George Bush, as you mentioned, and then John Tower coming along. It really was the first entree of elected Republicans in a state that had been top-to-bottom Democrat-controlled for generations. Well, you mentioned John Connolly, and John Connolly was a Democrat mm-hmm. uh, and continued to be a Democrat until he switched parties much later in his career. But it was interesting because when I switched parties, it got a degree of... Uh, attention politically from the press and, and I my my reason for switching was two things. Number one, as a freshman Democrat in the in the legislature, I received the best committee assignment possible and that was the Appropriations Committee. Ways and Means was nothing in the legislature. Uh, the tax committee was nothing. But appropriations was everything. And that had a lot to do with my ultimate changing parties because the chairman of the appropriations committee was an old uh, dyed-in-the-wool Democrat from uh, Paducah, Texas. And he was called the Duke of Paducah. <laughs> and he, he, he uh, would not accept any controversy in his committee and if you wanted to oppose him you 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 would lose everything so one day he came up to me on the floor of the legislature and he said you've got to stop opposing me of course I was independent in the way that I I voted and the way I handled myself and I was always going to do what I thought was right and uh, he didn't like that so uh, he told me he, that I had to stop doing that or I was going to lose the money for the University of Houston and a lot of other things that were important to me, except that the University of Houston was not important to me. He didn't know that. But in any event, I said, well, you can have to do whatever you want to do, but I'm going to continue to be independent. He got all red in the face and stomped off. Uh, but it was interesting because no media, no press was ever in any of our committee meetings. And I asked him, I said, Bill, what, why isn't the press here? He said, they can come if they could find us. And he, he held the co- committee meetings like a floating crop game all over Austin, Texas. And he would never tell anybody in advance other than members of the committee. And they dare not. They dare not tell the press. So that was that was just an untenable situation for me to exist that way. And uh, and in addition, of course, we had Hubert Humphrey making all the policies out of Washington from the Democrats, and that was intolerable to me. So I thought, look, I've, I've got to get to a point to where I can be more independent. So I just announced one day without saying anything to anybody that I was going to become a Republican. And I wasn't sure that was going to work because the Republicans then were so small, it was like they held their meetings in a phone booth. (laughs) 
uh, and I thought, you know, they may not may not be happy to have me, but I, I did it anyhow, and um, I got a little bit of reaction that was negative from the Republicans, but nothing serious. And when I ran for election, uh, I ran as a Republican. I got more votes as a Republican than I did as a Democrat. And uh, so it all worked. Now, in this era of pre-Ronald Reagan, I recall that there seemed to be two camps within the Republican Party, at least generally speaking. You were either a Goldwater Republican or you were a Rockefeller Republican. Where did you see yourself in that spectrum as you started out? Well, I was clearly a Goldwater Republican. Uh, I, I supported Goldwater actively in his effort for president, and of course he failed. And uh, I was really disappointed with that. But uh, there was no question in my mind that Goldwater was clearly the uh member of the party that best identified with my own feelings. You think it identified well with the district as well? I do. In in fact, uh, when I ran for Congress, I called him up one day in Washington. I'd never met him. And I, I asked him if he would be willing to come down and do an event for me in Houston. And uh, he immediately signed on. I was amazed. So we had arranged for a large auditorium, and uh, the day he was to come, he called and he said, I'm sorry, but we're going to have a, uh, a Senate meeting tonight that's going to go on for a while, and um, I can't make my commercial flight. And so I said, well, let me see what I can do. So we arranged for a private plane oh. for him to fly into Houston, which would let him leave later. And um, he flew into a Hobby Airport, and I remember standing out there and watching the plane land, and he was at the controls. <laughs> he actually piloted the plane into Houston, and... Um, so uh, we took him uh, to the event, and uh, I remember introducing him as a man for all seasons, along with many other things, but um, he had not been to Houston in over three or four years, so uh, he was a big draw for me. Oh, I'm sure. Now you've, you have gotten yourself elected to Congress. Do you remember your first impressions when you made the move up here? Well, I don't. I don't really remember much about that. Um, I know that being brand new, I wondered how I could uh, work and what I could do effectively. And um, first thing I had to do was to get an office, and and I, I was fortunate enough to be able to move into Bush's old office. But it was in a really bad location. It was on the sixth floor of the Longworth building. But I also had the question, what, what kind of staff am I going to have? And I had the problem of having to be able to 
have a staff that would make both sides of the party comfortable with me mm. back in Houston. And uh, people paid attention to who your staff was. And so I I got some Reagan people and I got some people who were more mainstream and went to work. And uh, it all worked fairly well. I had... Uh, I had the entire Jewish community in my congressional district. So I made a point of figuring out how I could um, be popular with them. And I worked very hard with that. I I went to the Jewish Community Center frequently, and I got actively involved uh, in Russian Jewry, where you had Jews who wanted to get out of Russia and were prevented from doing so. I was going to ask if that was the top priority for that community. I think it maybe was. I know I became very active and took advantage of it. So that worked out very well for me, and I got an awful lot of people out of the Soviet Union because I was actively interested in that, Uh, also who were not Jewish. In fact, one man came to my office one day and he said, I just have to really thank you for getting uh, a member of my community out of the Soviet Union. He said, I want you to know you are the sign of the cross. And uh, very soon after I was elected, there was a group, a delegation of congressmen who were invited to come to the the Communist Soviet Union as their guests. It was the first group that had ever been invited. Some way I got included in that. And that was an historic uh, event for me and actually for the Congress. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcasts from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Do you happen to remember what was the first bill you introduced as a congressman? I don't. I don't. I'm not surprised with such a lengthy career. I did, however, look up some of your legislative history and if that first year may have been or that first congress may have been a blur for you boy that second congress you hit the ground running on the first day january 3 of 1973 you introduced no less than eight bills and one joint resolution really yes sir i'm not sure i can remember a single one of them well i bet you will when I tell you the very first one you introduced, it was to repeal Davis-Bacon. Okay. 
I remember even in the 80s, that was still a hot topic for Republican offices. Right. So you were you clearly ahead of your time. But you were focusing a lot on business and employee relations. A number of the bills talk about that. But one also struck me, that eighth bill, H.R. 85, that first day, called for financial disclosures for members of Congress. Also ahead of its time. Now, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in our expectations that members have to disclose so yes. much information. Right. I imagine there wasn't much of that at all when you started. No. I, I, was, I was a leader, actually. I'm not by myself, but I was one of the leaders in, in bringing about uh, more transparency on the part of members of Congress activities. Uh, and uh, I continue to do that. And that joint resolution that you filed that very same first day of your second Congress would have required the federal government to operate under a balanced budget. Now, I've known you well enough over the years that I know that was a pet project of yours. Well, that was my number one uh, goal as a member of Congress because – I had spent uh, four years in the legislature and watched uh, us have to live with a balanced budget each of those years. <clears throat> and it, uh, the control of the currency had to sign off on every budget bill before it could become a part of the Texas operation. So I... I remember saying many times that uh, what is good for the state of Texas ought to be good enough for the the United States of America. But I I just felt like that was one of the important long-term major goals that we had to push uh, in Washington. Yeah, fast-forwarding through your career... You end up as chairman of Ways and Means, probably the most prestigious chair in the Congress. And you actually served in that role during a balanced budget time. That's true. That was the first balanced budget in how many decades? 40 years. 40 years. Phenomenal accomplishment. But you weren't always on Ways and Means, were you? Did you start with Banking Committee? That's correct. I, I spent my first two years on the Banking Committee... And that was like being assigned to purgatory. <laughs> uh, the chairman was Wright Patman, who was from northeast Texas. And uh, he was an avowed racist, which I only found out later. But what I found out immediately was that he did not like Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that Republicans on his committee were not even permitted to speak. And it was an incredible situation. And uh, I lived with that for two years, of being unable to be recognized and uh, not being able to offer an amendment and not being able to speak. And uh, I had to live with that. So when I got to the Ways and Means Committee and Wilbur Mills was chairman, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, is that right? 
uh, because Wilbur Mills treated every member, Republican or Democrat, with with respect and uh, authorized every member to do what he believed he wanted to do. And it was, I mean, I remember the first time that I worked, walked into Mills' office in the Capitol, and there was a long table, and he was sitting at the end of it, and the door to the, to the room was on the other end. So when I walked in and I saw him sitting there, I thought I was having an audience with God. <laughs> it, it was... Um, an incredible experience, and then every time that I offered an amendment, it received appropriate consideration. That had to be a tough committee seat to get, though. How exactly did you make it to Ways and Means after only two years? It was extremely difficult. Uh, George Bush had been there, but that didn't, he had, and you would think that I would have been able to succeed him, but on my freshman year, I was unable to do that. But one of the good things that happened to me was being able to be selected as a member of the Chatter and Marching Club. Okay, you have to tell us about this, because this is one of those clubs I had never heard about until I was doing a little background. Well, it's it's not heavily publicized as a club. But it was started by Richard Dixon and a number of returning uh, veterans who decided that they were going to fight uh, a veteran bonus bill that was being offered. And uh, they defeated it, but they they built a, a camaraderie that continued. And they decided, well, let's, let's go on and establish a club and we'll all be members of it. And we'll meet once a week, and then we'll we'll have uh, opportunity for all of our members to tell us what's going on in their committee and what's going on in their state. And uh, it just, it offered, and I was for some reason asked to join as a freshman, uh, and there were only two of us who were invited. The other one was Jack Kemp. Oh. And um, so I, I developed a lot of associations and friends that were helpful to me. Uh, Mel Laird, for example, was a member of the Chatter and Marching Club. I said Richard Nixon was, and Nixon was president. Each member would hold a meeting as a chairman once a year, and Nixon would hold his meeting every year in the White House. So that was a great opportunity for me. And uh, Kemp and I became very good friends. And when Sharon came to Washington, she was taken uh, under the wing of Joanne Kemp. And that was a great advantage for her, too, because Joanne got her involved in all kinds of things. And Sharon was very, very good at all kinds of social activities. So that worked very well. But I wanted to get on the Ways and Means Committee so badly. And there was a committee on committees on the Republican side that determined the committee situation. 
and I had to get approved by the Committee on Committees. So two of the members of the Chatter and Marching Club were on that committee, and they helped me tremendously to get on the Ways and Means Committee. It, it just was a major, uh, major advantage to me the whole time I was in Congress. Any idea where the name comes from? No, and no one ever knew. We, we, we checked on that, and no one ever knew where it came from. You get on Ways and Means your second term. Yes. And then after 22 years, you become the chair. Well, I guess that 22 is right. I haven't thought about the number. But um, that, in a way, was almost automatic because um, I had reached the point to where I was at the top of the um, uh, members who, who had risen up over the years. I became ranking, and then and Rosinkowski, uh, Dan Rosinkowski, Democrat of Chicago, was the chairman, and I became the ranking. And Russell Cassie did not particularly like Republicans, and he was not very cordial to me. So uh, I just kind of had to wait my turn. So after decades of the committee being run by the likes of Wilbur Mills and then Dan Rostenkowski, what were some of the first changes you implemented when you became chair? Well, I'm I'm not sure it changed a whole lot, but... The big difference was that Republicans could get something done on the committee. And under Rostenkowski, we couldn't. Right. And uh, it was all a difference to the world in being a majority and being able to come up with amendments and know that you can get them passed. It was not that the committee was run any differently. It was just that the numbers played into to my advantage. Uh, when you were chair or before you were chair, looking back over the span of your career, what was your proudest achievement? Well, I guess primarily two things. One was welfare reform, which was a major accomplishment on the part of the committee. And the other one was the balanced budget. And I played a major role in getting that done. I had had a good relationship with Bill Clinton as president. And uh, actually, he he became involved in helping to get the balanced budget. And he agreed to it and signed on to it. And he ultimately agreed to welfare reform, although that was very unpopular with members of his staff. Mm-hmm. That was quite an accomplishment because that was a milestone piece of legislation. Yeah, well, both of them were. Yeah. Do do you have any regrets or anything you wish you had accomplished that you didn't, policy-wise or otherwise? Not really. Um, On a day-to-day basis, there were individual issues that came up where I was disappointed that I didn't get it done. But but nothing as Mac, uh, of the magnitude of the balanced budget or welfare reform. And then in 2000, what was behind the decision to retire? Well, Gingrich had decided we had 
number one, Republicans had pretty much been for term limits, but we found when we got into the majority that the Congress could not simply enact term limits. Apparently, there was a constitutional restriction that we couldn't overcome. So Gingrich decided, well, since we can't do that, I'm just going to put term limits on my committee chairman. Sure. We're in control now, and we have our Republican committee chairman. And so he just got us, got the Republicans to enact term limits on the uh, committee chairman. And it was a six-year deal. So at the end of six years, I no longer could be chairman. Now, what was happening with other committees was frequently the Republican chairman, who could no longer become chairman of his committee, simply went to another committee and became chairman. But for me, no other committee could rise to the stature of the Ways and Means Committee, and I wasn't interested in taking chairmanship of another committee. So I was 72 years old, and it was time for me to leave anyhow. Okay. Looking back at your freshman session in Congress versus the year you retired and what you see today, how much has Congress changed, in your opinion, and how? Well, today the division between Democrats and Republicans is is significant. It's it's major. Whereas uh, when I was in Congress, I worked very happily with uh, members of, of the other side on a lot of issues, and um, that doesn't happen today. There may be a few issues where you can get a Republican and Democrat to agree, but uh, there are not very many. And I've heard that actually many Democrats will not even talk to a Republican, but um, they see the Republicans as enemies. And that's, that's what I've been told anyhow. I remember... There was a Democrat named Jerry Klutschka on the Ways and Means Committee, and uh, there was one time when things got pretty bitter between Republicans and Democrats, and I was determined to hold down the Republican side and, and cause them to stop using epithets and one thing and another, and Klutschka was important to me on the Democrat side because he would do that there. So, I mean, I just obeyed an agreement with him. Jerry, you keep your Democrats under control, and I'll keep the Republicans under control. And uh, it worked. If you were approached by someone newly elected to Congress for advice, what would that be? Well, I think my, the best advice I could give is do what you think is right. I look back on the 30 years that I was in Congress, and there was only one vote that I ever cast that was not precisely what I strongly believed. And every other vote I could say, look, I did what I thought was right. And I told the, told the people of my district what I was going to do and I explained to them why I was going to do it. And apparently that all worked. 
What was the vote? Well, I'd rather not even think about it. All right. Fair enough. Well, Mr. Chairman, it's been a real honor and always a pleasure to chat with you. Again, thank you for letting us into your home to have this conversation today, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Did that use up your 30 minutes? If you've got a story you'd like to tell or you have a recommendation of someone who would make a great guest on 80 Proof Politics, email us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. That's 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel.